We have a strategy of deterrence. That is to say, a capability between us all that will convince the Kremlin at all times that it cannot possibly be worth their while to attack us. They're stronger than we are, but it wouldn't be worth their while attacking us if the response was going to be so severe that they pay too high a price. NATO needs this uh, weapon in order that the deterrence would be complete. Without it, there would be a gap. Any gap in the deterrent is dangerous. And NATO decided unanimously and has never wavered from that decision that unless there is a change of heart on the Russian side, we have to have these weapons. If you were a Russian, what would your reaction be to the decision to deploy? Whilst the politicians, mainly men, were arguing, a group of women, quietly and then not so quietly, began a protest that lasted for 20 years. A protest against the employment of nuclear cruise missiles in Britain. It's now 40 years ago since that protest began with a march from South Wales to Greenham Common in Berkshire in the leafy heartland of home counties England to where an American base was to house the cruise missiles. The story of the Greenham Common protests is a counter-cultural intersection where movements such as C&D and suffrage, which predated the counterculture, mixed with the growing anti-nuclear movement, the women's movement, the green movement and the peace movement with all its social activism and protests of the 1970s and 80s. It's also a story where ancient British rights and principles of common land, that is land held collectively by and for the people, collided with heavy-handed central government and international Cold War politics. This is the Bureau of Cross Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Four Corners Books have just published a rather wonderful collection. Women for Peace, Banners from Greenham Common, banners that were made for the Greenham Common protests by those who protested. A celebration of the collective power of women and women's art and the history of peace campaigning. So I'm very pleased that at the Bureau for this episode, Women Against the Bomb, I have the author of that book, Charlotte Dew, who is a curator, researcher and writer specialising in 20th century and contemporary craft. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you very much for having me, Stephen. And I'm very pleased that with Charlotte and I, we have Talia Campbell, Banner maker and teacher born 24th of August 1937, now 84 years old and one of the founders of the Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp and on that original march. And of course, the artist and activist who made many of the banners that feature in Charlotte's book. Somebody who has integrated her political convictions and her artistic talents. Welcome, Talia. Thank you. Talia, Charlotte's book's come out. It's 40 years ago. It's like a bit of history. How does that feel looking back on it now? And, um, you know, what effect did it have on you? A bit strange, but Greenham totally changed me. I kept myself partially hidden because I was an artist and an activist and a feminist. And suddenly I sort of opened up and let my real self come out big and loud. (laughs) Right. But time's gone by. 40 years. I mean, 
your memories of that time and those events, are they still vivid for you? I remember every miniature Queenham and the March was my memories going in other directions, but that is vivid. Right, so the, the Greenham Common protest, they sort of entered into countercultural history, but for people who, who don't know about it, and in fact how it all started, why don't you give us uh, the background? How did you get involved and how did the March even begin in the first place? Wales was threatened with the dumping of nuclear waste. Michael Hesseltine announced in Parliament that Wales was going to dump it in four places in Wales. It was a good place to dump nuclear waste. And the community absolutely erupted. And the Welsh and the English came close. It was very heady. After 18 months we won, and Hesseltine said Wales was not a suitable place to dump nuclear waste. That was very heady. When you win, you know, it gives you a real lift. Right, so it had been proposed that nuclear waste was going to be dumped in Wales, and that got a bunch of you, led by Anne Petit, the campaigner, uh, to protest against it. Michael Hesseltine, the then minister in charge, kind of relented, it came back, but actually sort of spurred on by that, the success of that, you decided to take it further, right? It was very exhausting, that campaign, but very exhilarating. And in a way, it was part of the cultural Cold War, me in particular, because I was an artist. People brought their talents to Greenham, but my my um, talents were being an artist. And I always wanted... I couldn't stand abstract art. I always wanted to share my feelings and my beliefs in my art. No way did I want to pump up a paper bag, blow it up and hang it up from a bit of string. <laughs> so it gave me a real focus of my art. Prior to that, I was painting and drawing and teaching. And then suddenly, banners honed into view. We're going to talk a lot more about the banners with Charlotte too, actually. But for people who don't know uh, anything about green and what it, the name means and those protests... Just give us a bit of background to it. Why were you protesting? Well, they, they were American cruise missiles being brought into our country and people were concerned about it. We were concerned about nuclear waste and we didn't want foreign nuclear weapons in our country, not under our control. And I think the nuclear waste thing got us going in Wales. Right, and then Anne Petit had the idea for the march after that. 36 women, four men, aged between 25 and 80, and a few children, left Cardiff to walk 120 miles to across country to Greenham Common. Uh, tell us about that. You know, when did you leave and uh, when did you get there? I set off on the 27th of August and arrived on the 5th of September. And by that time, we were really close. I had my daughter 15 years old with me. She was a bit reluctant. She wanted to be riding a pony and going on the beach. But I think she looks back and she, she's quite proud now. It was just a very happy time and all the people who supported us on the way fed us and Anne Pettit did a wonderful job. We had speakers and entertainment and food. And the place that you're heading for, Greenham Common, one of these common lands in, in Britain, which means even if there's a, a technically an owner, it means that the common people, ordinary people, have got rights of access to it, to ride, to walk, to do other stuff, even to graze animals, etc. And that had been loaned, loaned to the Americans in World War Two, uh, and never sort of come back into public access, and was now going to be the home for these 96 American Tomahawk cruise missiles, each one of which had the destructive power of 50,000 tonnes of TNT, four times that of the atomic bomb that obliterated Hiroshima. 
part of a European-wide NATO deployment of cruise, arm, cruise missiles against the Soviet Union, basically. Um, and so you guys are heading that way. And along the way, what sort of response were you getting from uh, the people who were aware of the march? Yeah, we had a lot of love. A lot of love and support on the way. And actually, I remember in one particular place, I think it was Marlborough, we had a we always met in a circle. We never had rows. We decided we were going to be more communal. So we always put chairs in a circle. And everybody went around and spoke. It wasn't like somebody out at the front speaking and everybody else listening. And a, a silver-haired councillor in Marlborough, he was in tears because obviously he'd lived through the 30s and he was crying and he said, <laughs> so good to see somebody else working for peace. And I mean, to make a county council, Silverhead County Council, cry is quite the cheap. <laughs> yeah, a British uh, county council officer, especially in Marlborough, I mean, it is a, quite a conservative, traditional part of the country. Uh, so that's quite something, isn't it? And uh, were you sort of attracting, you know, more marchers joining you along the way? Um, not till the camp got there. People used to, if we stopped in a town, people used to come out to meet us and then see us off, but they never actually joined the march. We were the same group all right. the way. Right, right, right. So what, when you actually got there, you got to the American nuclear base in Greenham Common. How were you met or how, how did the Americans respond? It, it was quite low-key, really. We sat down and had a picnic and, and the American commander came out. I didn't talk to him, but he sort of threw away, oh, you can stay as long as you want, we don't mind, you know. <laughs> so he was quite welcoming, not really realising what he was in for then. You're rubbish, Morris, you can stay as long as you want, won't affect us. Right, there's no <laughs> threat from this bunch of strange women and... <laughs> And babies and grannies. <laughs> okay, so but you've you've done what you set out to do. You left uh, South Wales. You've marched all the way, and you've got there. So what happens next? Well, we had so little press coverage that we thought we had to do more. And Pettit was trying to get press coverage all the way. The one time the press found us was on the grass just before the Seven Bridge, because we were sometimes hosted in people's homes and we had to gather again. And we were all sitting in the grass in the sun and the gutter press found us and the Russian press found us and the French press. And the French and the, and the um, Russian press were asking really serious questions. I knew quite a lot about nuclear issues, but lots of women had just joined, you know, they weren't partic particularly interested. And um, it was quite challenging, but the gutter press, we're trying to get, we had four teenage girls on the march. They were more concerned with getting photographs of the girls' legs and knickers than talking to us about anything or being abusive to us. Yeah, well, business as usual for the press there. Um, but you've arrived, you've set up this camp. I don't imagine you thought at the time it was going to go on for 20 years, right? And so what was the thinking behind setting it up in the first place? And how did it, you come to involve your art through making banners? It was a spontaneous decision. And I think that was when the seed for making banners was sown on that grassy bank, because I thought, if we're going to be slated, like, how do I fight the gutter crest? But I thought I'd fight them with beauty, satin and stitches, and <laughs> seemed a bit strange, but it, it worked, I think. 
because then we made postcards of all the banners. They went around the world, and then people wanted the actual banners, so they went all around the world, and then they wanted me and the banners, and that went around the world. <laughs> I was rather lucky. Lots of people made things on the fence of Greenham, and they're all wonderful and beautiful. But I was really passionate about history, politics, art, feminism. So all those coalesced into bright, shiny banners. <laughs> A perfect time to segue into Charlotte. Charlotte, um, you know, Talia there giving us some of the background to uh, the Greenham protests 40 years ago now, so it's disappearing a bit into countercultural history. You know, why, apart from, you know, the numerical anniversary, why do you think it was an important time to publish your book about the banners, including Talia's work right now? been working on the book for quite a long time now and I think it it was great that we could release it for the 40th anniversary but really I've believed since I worked at the Women's Library um, and was cataloguing material connected to Greenham Common how important um, the banners are within the history of banners more generally but also um, within the history of women's campaigning and I'm a really big fan of banners as examples of the sort of messages of campaigning. They're really the the way that you can understand the basis on which campaigning is being undertaken. I really wanted to sort of dive into them and explore um, what the women were saying and why, but also how those banners were part of that protest. Right, and for Talia they were part of a personal protest weren't they, so of her, her own personal art translated into personal and public protest. There's also a sort of legacy aspect isn't, isn't there, I mean you know, as somebody who's uh, performed and, you know, curated many public events however wonderful they are, there's always a little bit of sadness about the fact that they don't leave that much of a trace. I mean everything's kind of filmed and you know, videoed and recorded these days, but it's all kind of digital, whereas uh, we don't leave so many artefacts behind often and there is something rather wonderful about the fact that these this this coming together in terms of protest and social action and social activism you know did leave behind these rather wonderful artifacts because they are actually they aren't they're relics but they're also memorials aren't they they are so at the time um of the campaign, I think they serve a collective purpose. So quite often they are made by an individual, as you say, an artist, or made by a group. And it's it's a way of channeling the the message. They they create this artwork um, and it can be done quickly and sort of amateurishly, but, you know, passionately, or it can be done very um, beautifully and um, in the way that Talia works, you know, very carefully designed and beautifully made. Um, but whichever way, they, they have this sort of collective purpose to convey the message of the campaign. They sort of stand up above the crowd. They, they shout what the demand is, often quite playfully. Um, you know, they, they're designed to attract attention. Um, and I think that you're right that things often don't survive and even banners often don't survive because they are quite um you know they tend to be big you know they get rolled up they can get damp um so quite in the book quite a lot of the banners we only know through 
for photography of the time. Some, absolutely, you're right, do survive. But when you look at a picture of a campaign, and this is true of suffrage campaigning and CND campaigning from the past, you know, you know, even further back than that, when you're looking at um, Chartism and, you know, the, the campaigning in the um, 19th century as well as the 20th century, the banners are what sort of stand out above the people and it's how you understand what's going on. Uh, so they're very sort of potent, I think. And then in time, they become a sort of relic or a, a remembrance of what happened. They go through that transitional um, um, sort of process. So they've got this rallying function, actually, as you're protesting. You can see them from quite a long way away. Uh, they've got they've got this uh, pro this function as kind of drawing attention from the media. And from uh, then they've got this this function as a relic. The other thing for me which is quite interesting with the banners is that you've got this countercultural intersection of all sorts of stuff going on. You've got the women's movement obviously, you've got the anti-nuclear campaigning going on, um, both of which is sort of, you know, predate but also are, were very tied up with the kind of classic counterculture years in, in, in this country, sort of late 50s through to through to the 90s um, and then you've got with the banners you've got the uh, I, I mean I don't I'm not sure if Charlie will be happy at this description but you've got what I would call sort of outsider art you know you've got kind of uh, folk art outsider art in a way it's you know artistic or artifacts which have been produced by artists but they have a sort of they're outside the kind of the art establishment as it were I suppose that's what I mean by when I say outsider art so you've got all those things um, sort of coinciding haven't you in the banner you do. I mean, I think um, one of the things that Four Corners Books wants to do, who's published um, this particular book, is acknowledge these art forms and how important they are. So it's part of a series of books, they're called Irregulars, which delve into things which are creative and artistic, but actually not maybe part of that mainstream canon. I would, I mean, I would very much argue for them to be part of the canon, to be an example of what's um, important to understanding a time. They are social history, they are art. You know, as you say, they have these different functions. And, and levels and they are part of a continuum of that art form so one of the things in the designs of green and banners that you can identify is that they were drawing from the language used as you say by the peace movements that predated them you know all of the cnd work that went on from the 50s onwards they also draw from the women's liberation movement you get the the, you know, the, the female symbol with the fist, which in itself drew from the civil rights movement iconography. And then you very much um, can identify a link to suffrage. And I think a lot of um, the green and women looked back to that as a source of inspiration. I know Talia did. Um, you can see that in the colours they choose to use. So you've got the colours of the Women's Social and Political Union, the purple, green and white. You also see it in the colours of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Society. You've got the red, green and white and um, quotes from Sylvia Pankhurst on a banner. You know, so it, it, there's, a, there's a strong understanding and knowledge of what these women are part of, and that is female led campaigning and they adopt that language and they evolve it for the time in which they um, are protesting and I mean suffrage campaigning started 
in the 19th century, you, you have the Chartists, which is the male, more of a male campaign. And then in the late um, 19th century, it's non-militant, it's non-violent protest. And then as you come into the 20th century, you get Emmeline Pankhurst and the Pankhursts at large, who argue that, you know, no change will be made without sort of um, interventions such as breaking windows and, and campaigning in a more violent way. So, um both of those strands of suffrage used banners, but they would have a number of different functions, just as the green and banners did. So they would be, they would be processed. They would um, so in large rallies and that kind of thing. They would um, be on the stage behind speakers. They were made very professionally. Um, so and then just like with green and as well as the more professional and artistic banners, you get people locally making their own banners. Um, so you get these two sort of types of banner, the, the sort of, um, yeah, the very professionally made, and you also get the, the more amateur, but equally as impassioned. And that, and that follows right through right. the 20th century. Right, right. So uh, we're going to come back to more of that a bit later. But in the meantime, Talia, I'm going to return to you. We sort of left you there at the Greenham Common US Nuclear Air Base and you and your friends, your tribe, have decided to set up this peace camp. Um, what was it like? I mean, maybe you could just take us through sort of day-to-day life in the camp, you know, where you made these wonderful banners. Well, I used to go up and stay there for, th- for three or four days at a time regularly because I, to make banners, I had to go home and be plugged into a sewing machine <laughs> working all day and night. But I, I needed to go up to refresh my enthusiasm and keep in touch. So I was up regularly for four or five times a day. It wasn't comfortable, but it's amazing how inventive women are and how cooperative most of them are. And we had tents and and um, in a sort of parliament and he had all the phone numbers of the Guardian and all the newspapers. So he got a bit in the newspapers. Ian's your husband. Yeah, I was teaching part-time at the University of Extramural Art, Aberystwyth University, so I was a bit pinned down. So they asked me to go up, but I couldn't go up. But Ian could, and he he um, helped a lot setting the camp up. He, he got, a, he got a, a standpipe for the water, and um, he he went to see the, the head of the council in Newbury, and, and the man, the council... The head of the council said, oh, we don't mind you camping there as long as you obey all the rules and keep everything safe and clean and all safe. Dis- if you don't, you know, if you camp properly and don't, don't break the law. Right. So you've got some basic hygiene and sanitation and water facilities in place. And then presumably people come and go, do they bring in food and supplies and whatever else you, you need? Some people live there all the time and um, some people visit for the day. And, and I went up for a few days because of my commitment to make banners. You know, I couldn't do that at camp. <laughs> right, so you're making the banners partly back in Wales and then coming up periodically. Uh, and then the following year, March 1982, there's the first of the blockades where uh, the activism takes a much more active uh, route and the police get involved. Maybe Newbury Council had been quite uh, tolerant so far, but there's a lot more... Uh, police action, 34 women arrested and of course there's this tragic thing where Helen Thomas, a young woman, is killed um, in an accident with a vehicle which must have been uh, very shocking and tell us about the thinking behind actually having the blockade. We, When we got up there, first we thought we were being ignored so we thought we had to stay and then when we stayed we were being ignored so we had to do a bit more and I was on the 
well, I think I was on the first brocade, and I wasn't very courageous at the time. Other women, we blocked the front gate. I sat on the grass at the edge. <laughs> I think, actually, as I got braver, I moved out and sat in the middle. <laughs> so it took us time to get brave and imaginative and inventive, and <laughs> it was a slow process. Right, uh, you're getting more active. Women are chaining themselves to the fence. There's more women coming. The media are getting more interested. Uh, time's passing, and then the following year, uh, there's a much, much bigger event, isn't there, where 30,000 women come to the base. Tell us about that. Oh, those big gatherings were amazing. <laughs> the sort of spirit they revised, and, and all being women together. I mean, I don't dislike men, but there is a great difference when there's all women together. Because I remember when I first went up to Greenham, the press would come out and the men, husbands, boyfriends, whatever, would say, you go make the tea and I'll talk to the press. Really pissed us off, you know, and that had to change. You go make the tea and we'll talk to the press. <laughs> so I'm going to put my hand up right now, Tell you, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll make the tea. I'm a tea maker. Happy tea maker. <laughs> so you can see the changes, you know, how I sat on the edge of the brocade, moved out to the middle, and then we were told to go and make the tea while the men talk to the press about a women's march and a women's camp so things changed in big ways and small ways <laughs> absolutely well uh, but thirty thousand people thirty thousand women and some men gathering that's an awful lot of people in the pre-internet age pre-mobile phone age how did you bring them all together what was your sort of means of media connection everybody went away and guaranteed to contact 10 more people and each of the and contacted 10 more people so it was word of mouth and like a chain letter even though we got vilified by the media people some people would love the vilification and others would be angry and come and join us so so the publicity we got even though it was bad it was still good yeah no no such thing as bad publicity as we know uh so but you know 30,000 people gathered together what was that like? It was wet. It was muddy. <laughs> and um, we all brought things to put on the fence. I mean, I I had, had I made a banner by then. I think I'd started making because I already had a Nuclear Free Wales banner from the Nuclear Free Wales campaign. So I took that one up and I'd made Remembrances Not Enough with a view to the um, taking it to the Cenotaph that autumn, October, November. So I took up two or three banners which I'd made. And... Um, other people brought up all, anything that meant babies' booties, photographs of great-grandfathers killed in wars, their favourite dresses, their favourite tea services. So the whole fence was a mass of everything people loved and didn't want to lose in a nuclear war. And this starts to work, right? Because, I mean, the, the, the images of this, of the fence and what you're doing, start to travel around the world. International media, people from around the world start to come and join you. Local media can't really ignore it anymore. Uh, and I'm sure there was sympathetic voices in the media, but you were, did it also become the target of uh, vilification, as you said? And what were the sort of things that were being said? According to the media, we were filthy lesbians, bad mothers, dropouts, hippies, scroungers. The bad names they thought to call us were just amazing. And, you know, I, I'm very interested in history. And the suffragettes were called all the same things. <laughs> so we got abused. Just the, more, the bigger we got, the more abuse we got. I was at the Blue Gate and... Um, we blockaded the Blue Gate, we all lay in the road <laughs> and the police kept throwing us into the ditch and away and we kept coming back and that 
that was very exhausting. The police were dripping sweat. As they picked us up, they were dripping sweat on us because it went on from six in the morning till four in the afternoon. <laughs> and I wore a very loose coat deliberately. I didn't fasten it. So when they picked me up, my coat came off and they threw my coat into the distance and all the women thought it was me flying through the air. <laughs> and... Um, and the police actually, I talked to a young policeman. It was his first day in the job. And he said, oh, he said he so loved coming here, not football matches. It was wonderful. And, you know, the police actually really enjoyed being there all night, talking to women in June with the moon and the flowers and the forest. And the police actually liked coming to Greenham. <laughs> Where do you get the chance to be out all night with women? <laughs> Yeah, well, we can't blame him, really, can you? I mean, um, football matches, they can be quite blokey affairs. And at that time, I think they were still quite quite heavy duty, quite a lot of violence. So it probably was a, a preferred option uh, for a young copper, or for some of them at least. Um, not for all of them. Obviously, you were having some quite unpleasant uh, interactions with them and the authorities, local authorities, and, of course, the national authorities, the government questions in Parliament, etc. It was all heating up a bit, particularly, of course, um, when you started to cut holes in the fence it's almost like this the damage aspect of it really got people going didn't it so were you doing that too is that was that one of your uh, actions oh yes i did <laughs> i borrowed the wire cutters from a sculptor in north wales he's quite well known and they were his grandfather's cutters that cut the barbed wire in the first world war and you know the police took them off me and i tried to get them back to return them and they wouldn't answer they wouldn't give them back so I, my cutters to cut the fence were cutters that had cut barbed wire in the First World War. And I, yeah, we cut, and we, <clears throat> it was quite spectacular. The police didn't know what to do because there was us all cutting the fence down on the outside and they were taking the cutters off us and throwing them. And we were, oh, and finally, after we, we nearly cut down seven miles of fence. And we were jumping up and down it like it was a trampoline. <laughs> And they flew helicopters at us right low because we were standing on each other's shoulders cutting the fence because the women at Greenham had been around, snipped the bottom, snipped the middle, but not snipped the top. So the fence was just hanging like a bit of washing. So all we had to do was climb on each other's shoulders, cut the top and the whole fence came down. Right. So you're breaking into the base. That was uh, getting a lot of media attention. And then particularly this, this incident where women were dancing on the nuclear silos. Oh, that was amazing. Yes. I mean, we got braver and braver with the things we did. I was in Oxford that night. I just didn't get down there. But it was really inspiring. And that photograph went all around everywhere, didn't it? It did. And, um, you know, the commander of the base, the American commander of the base, who maybe had, you know, sort of welcomed you or tolerated you at the beginning as this kind of, you know, harmless bunch of cranks, uh, must have changed his mind by this time, of course. And what were the British government's response to this? Heseltine or Thatcher would announce in Parliament that if we went into the base, we would be shot. You'd be shot? That was what was the announcement in British Parliament? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a bit frightening, but we ignored it. And um, what would happen? The soldiers, British ones, would creep to a quiet part of the fence, meet a woman, give us their instructions for the day. We're not to set the dogs on you. We're not to hurt you. So in Parliament, we were going to be shot. The people inside the base who'd just been briefed that morning, no, you're not going to be shot. <laughs> 
And they also said, why don't you come in? This is nine o'clock in the morning. Why don't you come in right now? We're really bored in here. Why don't you come in right now? They're in <laughs> so, not, <laughs> so not a very consistent uh, response from the establishment then. <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, I'm sort of joking apart. That is very heavy, isn't it? To uh, to be implied that you know, British citizens will be shot on British soil, you know, over a protest. Um, that is kind of very, very serious, right? Yes, and um, I think they were quite concerned that the Americans might shoot us. You know, because. At one point at the Blue Gate, there was an American woman absolutely tooled up. She had everything. She lost it. And I thought, my God, you know, the Americans could shoot us. There was quite some concern. And I did feel that day that woman might shoot one of us. You mentioned then the Blue Gate, and that was one of the features of the camp. It was, in fact, lots of smaller camps around the base at the different gates, and they each had different colours and different characteristics, right? Yeah. And what was so good, if you had religious people, political people, environmental people, heavy feminists, not such heavy feminists, so that nine miles gave us all the space to be there and be ourselves, you know? We stopped a lot of arguments. Because you could choose, I went to blue or orange. Orange was a sort of family gate when men were allowed in the day. Let's talk, let's talk about that. It was an initiative by women. It was a women's peace camp, a women's march. Um, you mentioned before that um, Ian, your husband, uh, was involved and other men were. What was, what was the policy, or was there a policy with regard to men's involvement? We reached an arrangement in the end that men could come and visit during the day, but not stop overnight. And some of us were quite friendly to men and the hospital make them a cup of tea, others not so friendly. And um, I remember making a cup of tea for a man who came to the base and he was a supplier of fences for military bases. <laughs> and <laughs> he was really glad we were cutting it in pieces. And he well, you're generating new business portfolio by the sounds of it. And actually, we found out the fence, the posts, all the this supplier of fences told me how thick the metal was, how strong the concrete was, how the, the foundations were, and we realised it was a rubbish fence. Which is which is slightly worrying, considering it was surrounding um, some very, very potent, powerful nuclear weapons. Um, Tully, you've talked about, obviously with the press, you know, as ever, left and right, you know, there's some supporters and lots of vilification. But what was your relationship like with the locals? Um, you know, Newbury, which is the nearest uh, big town, you know, mentioned before, Berkshire's kind of posh, conservative uh, part of England, really. So uh, what did the locals think of you and all the things that you were up to? They were pretty awful. We had a few absolute stalwart supporters who gave us baths and meals and looked after us. But the locals were pretty awful, actually. I mean, eggs were thrown at us. I, I don't know if they ever drove a car over the tent. I never saw that. But that was quite likely. You could be asleep in your tent at night and someone would drive a car over it. Right, that's pretty heavy. But I mean, uh, I read about a local group with a you know, rather unfortunate acronym, RAGE, Residents Against Greenham Encampment, or possibly Ratepayers Against Greenham Encampment. Ratepayers meaning local taxpayers. Um, and they were, you know, very exercised by your presence there. But was that because they were a group of people who were sort of pro-nuclear deterrent or was it all to do with the fact that uh, you were actually camping in their nice leafy part of England? 
What I saw, they didn't like the mess of the dirt. That was their excuse. They didn't like the mess of the dirt. And actually, we were quite, we were quite clean. We had places to wash. We had shit pits, and you know, we were well organised. Yeah, nothing more, nothing more offensive than your, your average uh, rock festival in somewhere in the UK, right? Probably better. Probably better. Um, okay, so it was a mixed bag, but um, they were generally against you being there, and of course, they did manage to get you. Oh, didn't they? Oh, we were evicted twice. First in the local courts. I was banned from three counties. <laughs> no, then in the London, and then the bailiffs came round when I was up there, and I was the first. so the court case in the High Court was New Ship Council versus Thalia Campbell, <laughs> seventeen others, and then there was a description of and any more. <laughs> I can't. And we were tried in the High Court. Right, there was evictions going on. There was there's some really quite nasty scenes, wasn't there, of, uh, of women being dragged away, getting all quite, getting quite violent, um, and the judicial process being applied, but not very successfully. Um, maybe you can tell us about that, about how that went. And then what we did in London, there's a way you can apply to be joined. You know, when some people are being prosecuted, you can say, I was there too, I was there too. <laughs> and so, so we're prosecuting a lot of us. And did anybody actually go to prison? Oh, yeah, lots, lots went to prison, yeah. And what they did was they educated the prisoners, gave the prisoners confidence. So in a way, it was very inconvenient to have been a woman in prison because they were doing a great job on giving self-confidence to all the others. So people are going to prison, there's regular evictions, and, uh, you know, what was happening when you were being evicted? Were you, you were just coming straight back? Yes, yeah. In fact, we became very, very bold and imaginative. The court case, there were, oh... There was a lot of us, and first we went into a small court, and the judge asked 40 women to sit on 12 chairs. So 40 women attempted to sit on 12 chairs, and there was a heap of chairs and women all tangled up in the court. <laughs> Which he, he couldn't give a straight face. So <laughs> happened to the British court turning into farce. Uh, and of course, you know, several judges, in fact, um, if, if they didn't even necessarily side with you, they, they declined to side with the government and enact what they were being asked to enact. And um, it didn't work. We turned it all against them. You turned it all against them. And, um, you know, the, the impact, the media impact was growing, people from all around the world coming. And of course, you ended up inspiring other peace camps, other peace protests around the world. Uh, and then come 1991, um, the cruise missiles are removed from the Greenham Common Base. The camp itself carried on, and of course, the, you know, the whole nuclear story carries on. Um, but do you think that your actions in the camp and the protests, you know, were instrumental in uh, the removal of the cruise missiles at Greenham? They might have gone anyway, but I think we certainly drew attention to them and made them think a bit more deeply about what was going on, and that the cruise missiles going over the plains of Europe. They had great difficulty in finding their way to Moscow because they're in the mountains, no hills. And I think they weren't as useful as they made out to be. Right, the, the missiles were gone, but the camp carried on. Um, with you? Well, I didn't carry on once the missiles are gone. That was my job done. And um, Why did it carry on? It was regaining the common land, which I thought was great. Absolutely wonderful to regain the common land. Well, it was a military base. It took all the fences down, wild animals, wild plants. You know, it was a, it was a common, common land. People could walk, walk their dogs. Right, so it's gone back to the way it was meant to be with access for the public. Yeah, I haven't been up there since, but 
I hear it's very beautiful now, woods and flowers and trees. And yeah, and there's a memorial to the peace camp there and a memorial to Helen Thomas, the young woman <clears throat> who was killed there. Right, but the peace camp went on uh, and then, you know, your banners went on. This Your banners, which is your artistic response to the whole thing, which you created... Uh, they went on and they've had this sort of remarkable life of their own been prior to uh, Charlotte's book. Tell us what happened. While screening was going on, I was also touring an exhibition called 100 Years of Women's Balance. I was setting Greenham in context, borrowing stuff from museums, borrowing stuff from local groups and touring this great big exhibition through City Hall, City Art, Paris, City Museums and having celebrations. That was touring Greenham it went on after Greenham, it went on from 1983, we were doing this big exhibition and also keeping Greenham, going up to Greenham and I also sent the the, um, banners abroad. So we made postcards and we did, um, well I made postcards for other people as well, but I made 89 postcards, 18,000 of some, 12,000 of others. And I sent the Greenham postcards all around the world because in those days we didn't have the internet. Mm. So Australia, New Zealand, America, Germany. And then then the people who bought the postcards wanted to see the actual banners. So sometimes I air freighted them and posted them to those countries. And sometimes I went with them. My banners became like a magic carpet. <laughs> Charlotte, I mean, uh, Talia's banners are magical, wonderful things, aren't they? And hence, you know, your book. Um, it's not always the sort of thing that you think would make joyful things, is it, protest? <laughs> But there's something sort of uh, very celebratory about them. Do you think that they link in? I mean, sort of in the, sort of in a perpendicular direction, as it were, with other things like I was just thinking the HIV memorial quilts and stuff. You know, where you've got that oh, that that other kind of um, they have much more memorial quilts, obviously, aren't they? they? They weren't made as protests, but there is somehow that feels like they somehow part of a family uh, I'm not quite sure a craft family somehow um, yes. a ca- countercultural craft family I mean do you think so I would agree that there is a solidarity in making things together so um, absolutely that you can see the links with with um, yeah the, the um, HIV quilt I mean there's another project that links to it in a peace context which is the peace ribbon which was made in America but other people contributed from around the world and it was a particular size and shape of fabric made to tie to another piece of fabric and then that was um that went around um, government buildings in washington um but but i think we all at some level derive a benefit from making something whether that's cooking sewing gardening you know, as we think about wellness and those types of things, there is there's a benefit to be derived. So when you're involved in a common cause, coming together to create something is, is about that bond of a, a shared passion, a shared ideal. And um, banners are a very natural thing to make in, in that way or quilts or um, other things because it, they come to symbolise what you all believe in. And, and I think that's very, it's a very positive thing um, for those who participate in it. Uh, recently, it was last, last year, a couple of years ago now, um, Extinction Rebellion did a takeover here at Soho Radio. And uh, one of the great things about that is that they occupied the building for, um, I mean, uh, well, we're invited to occupy the building uh, for uh, a week or, or so. And one of the great things actually was is that they were doing, they were 
actually producing stuff in the room, screen printing T-shirts, actually, and people could come in and actually do that with them here, you know, here. Uh, and there was there was something about the making, actually, as you say, sort of doing it together, which is is very sort of connecting, isn't it? I think it absolutely is connecting. I think it, it I mean, physically and literally, it connects you to the cause because you produce something that then you can then wear or carry, which allows you to try and spread that message to other people. There's, um, I, I like the fact that on some Italian banners, she has, um, she takes from suffrage banner designs, the slogan, join us. And um, she took it, as I understand, literally um, to mean, you know, join this this um, cause, join this rally. Um, but actually it, it meant at the time, join universal suffrage. So there is a sort of sense of the importance of joining in and, and, and doing things together. The other thing is that when you're campaigning, if you're occupying land like the women were at Greenham or indeed a building or wherever you are, Although you're actively involved in doing something, there's probably also time because you're, you're, you're there and you need to occupy yourself and producing things that allow you to convey the message even further is a really productive way of spending that time. I mean, that's not to say it was always easy to make things at Greenham because the women were living outdoors, the evictions were frequent, um, and, you know, it's very cold and wet and, you know, at certain times. But that doesn't mean to say that there weren't times when women didn't come together to, to do that. Particular um, sort of creative activities around, happened around the Embrace the Base events when thousands and thousands of women descended on Greenham and linked hounds around the whole, um, the whole scope of the airbase um, and attached creative things to the fence, which were designed and chosen to represent life. So the things that would be lost, you know, if there was a nuclear bomb. Um, and it's all about symbolism as well, symbolizing the message, the loss, what will happen if, you know, these things um, are allowed to occur in the context of nuclear war or, you know, um, environmental um, loss. You know, it's, it's, to get people to embrace the cause, you need to tell them why and how they can join in. The cruise missiles left, uh, so the protests were, you know, contributed without any doubt, I'm sure, to that. Uh, but it's 40 years ago, and uh, of course the spectre of nuclear weapons is raising its head again. But I mean, in terms of uh, more recent um, protests, do you see that there is a connection somewhere between what was happening at Greenham 40 years ago and stuff that might be happening now? Or as a sort of historian, do you see a connection between those things and the impact that Greenham had? Yes. I mean, I think um, each campaign feeds into the next because when you are, when you come to a campaign to understand that people in the past have fought for something and have affected change, you know, is, is, it's important in terms of your morale and, and, and wanting to do it. And, and also it helps you have a language for what you're doing. Um, and in many ways, a lot of the, I don't know, I say at the beginning of the book that the Green and Banners can be read in a lot of different ways. This is about the history of women's campaigning. It's about the history of peace campaigning. 
It's about the history of banner design. So it's about the history of art and in particular women's art. So um, it, it, it sort of acts as a stimulus for, for understanding, but also inspiring um, for the future. But I think that the, the world that we live in it is one in which all of the issues, you know, particularly with peace and armament are still pertinent today i mean as you say they're slightly different you know we're, we're fighting against different things but absolutely this push and pull against a world that involves war that involves um the production of weapons is what the women didn't want at greenham and and many many people continue to fight for that now the book is terrific i'm going to put a link obviously to that in the show notes and um so thank you for coming to the bureau of lost culture Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. And Talia, you know, when you witness uh, young people today uh, protesting, well, not just young people, people today protesting, whether it be Occupy or Black Lives Matter or Extinction Rebellion, you know, do you feel a connection with, um, you know, what you did? Yes, I do. I follow it with great interest. Yeah. How do you feel about when uh, we read about Boris Johnson's plan to actually increase our nuclear capability again? Absolutely. Oh, I can't describe sick, sick, sick and angry, horrific. And he says they've got to be some of the small ones that he can use. I mean, that's almost worse than those cruise missiles coming to Greenham all those years right, ago. Right, because the argument then was that actually it's a deterrent. Nobody's ever going to use these things. But if you're talking about small, <laughs> small ones, tactical ones, um, they can be used. Small ones that he can actually use. They never said that about cruise missiles, did they? So it's even worse. Well, whatever happens next, looking back, you know, 40 years into countercultural history, when all those countercultural things uh, came together in the Greenham protests and the marches and the camps, um, I imagine you feel quite proud, do you, of what you did and, uh, you know, what just happened and, you know, how it's represented and still kept in the banners? Absolutely. And it was marvellous going on that march and seeing what it grew to be, you know, from just... 36 women and children and four men, I think. It was just amazing. I think Anne Paddock was inspired. Absolutely. Well, that's it. Uh, we got there. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Talia, for sharing your stories with the Bureau of Lost Culture. <laughs> thank you. And thanks again to Charlotte. So... Listener, I hope you enjoyed those stories too. You can check out uh, Talia's banners in Charlotte's book, Women for Peace, Banners from Greenham Common, published by Four Corners Books. I can put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, And I trust uh, I will see you and hear you again next time when we hear more stories from the counterculture. You can check us out, of course, at bureauoflostculture.com and now on all major podcast providers. You can even leave us a review if you've enjoyed it. See you next time. I'm Stephen Coates. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture. We're going to end with some audio from Green and Common Days. Here is Talia and her tribe singing against the bomb. <laughs> <laughs>